Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested in this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, join Gelt. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting guest. We have a guest that has done it so many times, so many times that I've lost track. I mean, it's really unbelievable. Uh, but again, you know, we're going to be talking about building, scaling, financing, all of that good stuff that we like to hear. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Carl Jacob. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So originally born in Missouri. So how was life growing up? Give us a little of a walk through memory lane, Carl. A little walk through memory lane. Well, I grew up on a ranch and my first job, my first real job was actually shoveling crap. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things that uh, not super proud of, but that'll definitely make you not want to go back there and shovel crap for the rest of your life. I mean, that, that's pretty unbelievable. I mean, I, I guess that uh, you you got to start somewhere, no? As the as the saying goes. Now, you went to private school, and you went to to private school with someone that perhaps you know the listeners may recognize. Who was that? Yeah, so I actually started out in public school and went to public school until uh, the education failed me, and my parents picked me up and sent me to private school. And that's actually John Burroughs. That's where Sam Altman went as well. That's unbelievable, you know. So I'm sure that uh, there you guys have been able to chat about that and. And he, he must be busy nowadays. Now, in your case, you know, I guess that when we are, you know, touching on the education subject, your father was very helpful when he came to uh, give you that, that, that push to get you into computer science. He, he was. I was all set out to be a letter of arts and sciences student. And my dad grabbed me and took me by the ear over to the engineering campus, introduced me to the dean, and uh, that he basically hired me or made me a student uh, right there on the spot. So I became an engineer within like 30 seconds of meeting him. Now, in your case, you begged the Apple representative to get you there in an internship. And also you ended up uh, doing the same thing with some microsystems, which you actually went there for your first uh, full-time job. But I guess that that gave you the exposure to, to the land of innovation and to everything that was going on. So how, how was that for you? It was amazing. I worked at the bookstore and uh, had met the Apple rep and had met the Sun rep. And I thought, wow, this technology stuff is pretty crazy and pretty cool. And so I uh, begged both of them to get me a job. Ultimately, that worked out pretty well for me. So my summer internship at Apple was 
really, really interesting. It just opened my eyes to what was possible. And then working at Sun, I actually got to work in the group that ended up creating Java. And so being in a group of people that are that talented, who can literally create anything, was a true honor and kind of set the bar for me and for my future companies. Now, with Sun Microsystems, you were there for a couple of years. And, um, you know, eventually you decide that it's time to pick up the phone and notify your mom of something that she would not be very excited to hear. Yeah, I told my mom that I was leaving to start my own company and she cried. Uh, she said she begged me to stay in the job and told me, why would I leave a perfectly good job? Uh, I'm glad that uh, I didn't let her talk me into that. So what was that process? Because, I mean, obviously, you know, you came from from shoveling, like you said, crap to all of a sudden, you know, you're here, you know, a nice, you know, uh, job with a steady income, your parents, you know, super thrilled, you know, with that thing, with that, with that environment that you had created for yourself. So what was that process for, for you to, to think, Hey, you know, maybe this is not for me. Maybe I want to start something on my own and give my notice. Yeah, it was pretty easy for me. I, I remember going to my boss at the time and saying, Hey, I think I'm ready for the next level. And he said, hey, I just promoted you last year. You can only be promoted so much. Tough. Just wait it out. That's the way it works. You're in corporate America. And I thought, well, then corporate America really isn't for me. So then what happened next? Well, we started a company and, you know, that was a great experience. Learned a lot. Uh, ended up being kind of the platform from which I started my, my first real company, which is Dimension X, which I founded actually in my apartment in San Francisco. And uh, it's funny, I remember having to ask for them to run a T1 line, meaning a high-end te telecommunications line, into the apartment because all I had were basically phone lines. Now, what year was that? That was 1995. I mean, I'm sure that things have changed quite a bit. And, and, and funny enough, that company was, your first angel investor was Ron Conway. And, uh, you know, I'm sure those were the early days, you know, for him too, of, uh, of, 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 of placing some, some tickets in some companies. So how was it like to, uh, to have Ron Conway, you know, back you here? Because I know that he also played a pivotal role when he came to the acquisition of the company. Yeah, I mean, Ron wasn't Ron back then. I mean, he was just becoming Ron. And so a lot of it was we were both learning, but he had a lot of really great advice. I think one of the biggest was helping me with the decision as to whether or not I should sell the company. And he drew a curve on a whiteboard that basically showed where I was today and how much I would make. And, and more importantly, how much the team and the you know people who were shareholders in the company would make. And then if we raise more money, how you kind of have to spend the next five years building value to get back to the same place that you are today. And so when, when entrepreneurs think about raising money, they often don't think about the fact that That's usually dilutive. Well, it is dilutive. And so you have to create a lot more value to realize that. And that's not just important personally. It's important for your team and your shareholders. And what was that journey like of, um, you know, Microsoft? I mean, unbelievable company. What was that journey like of going through that acquisition and how, how it happened and what kind of visibility did it give you into the full cycle of, of a company? Yeah, well, I, it, it was interesting because I'd been at Sun, but I, I really, uh, when it came down to choosing who was going to buy us, I chose Microsoft because I wanted to learn. Microsoft at the time was probably the best consumer software company on the planet. That was about 1997. So they were pretty legendary. I learned really early, great deal tactics. I, I remember that both Sun and Microsoft were 
wanting to meet with us during the acquisition. And I remember the guy from Sun saying, hey, how about if we come tomorrow, Wednesday, which was the day? And I said, I can't do Wednesday. I can do Thursday. Well, he brought his entire deal team down from Redmond, Washington, Wednesday and was sitting in my lobby right when Sun Microsystems walked through the door to do the meeting that I had basically pushed him off for. Super great tactic, right? Because that put a lot of pressure on me. And it also made Sun know that, hey, there was somebody else at the table and they better get their act together. So uh, one of the truly defining moments in my career is seeing that kind of deal-making acumen right up and close. So obviously, you know, the the deal ended up happening uh, and uh, you ended up getting acquired by uh, Microsoft. So as it comes to now building, scaling, raising money, uh, and then all of a sudden the company is, is acquired, I mean, what kind of visibility did that give you? Well, it definitely teaches you a few lessons. I think the biggest when you're at Microsoft, you realize that these big companies that have made so much impact were all startups at one point even Microsoft. And so I got the chance to learn from the executives during the executive training program. Kind of the end of that program is you actually get to hear the story of Microsoft from the founders, which was just mind-blowing to think they were that small. And I think that's the important thing for entrepreneurs to remember. Everything starts small. Everything starts with an idea. Everything starts with a few people and grows from there or, or not. And so this idea that they all start like with the success already happening or with the winds behind their backs. I have never found that to be the case. Now, for you, after the transaction happened, then you became an entrepreneur in residence for Benchmark. And that was the uh, segue that would take you to your next company, Keen. So what were the sequence of events that needed to happen for you to bring Keen to life? Well, I got recruited by uh, Benchmark to be an entrepreneur in residence, which I had no idea what that meant, other than the fact that I'd always raised money from non-institutional, like angel investors. And so I really had heard about this VC stuff, but I didn't really know what it was all about. And so joining Benchmark was my way of learning and, and kind of getting to understand that industry better. The My job was effectively to get paid to come up with ideas, which I remember Bob Cagle a couple of times said, okay, great, great idea put that in the drawer and then come up with one, a new one tomorrow, which as an entrepreneur, I was like, well, wait, that is the idea. He's like, no, 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 you need to go through a process. You need to look at a lot of different things. And I don't think many entrepreneurs get the opportunity to do that or do that. And I really highly recommend that. Like your first idea is not necessarily your best idea or the only idea that you'll have. And time is really the most precious thing that you've got. So spend it on something you have really thought through all the different issues and are giving yourself the biggest and best opportunity to be successful before you go raise money, before you recruit a co-founder or other people into the company. So that process ended with kind of an idea and a group of people. We had a team already working on it at Benchmark. And that was kind of a unique one because they had found someone else or two other entrepreneurs had been working on a similar idea. We ended up putting the two things together, which which created the company. And what was Keen doing? So Keen was interesting. If you think about eBay as being for stuff that's in your garage, Keen was for stuff in your head. So selling everything from psychic advice to legal advice to medical advice, you you name it. And in fact, Jeff Skoll from eBay was on our board, and he taught me a tremendous amount about marketplace dynamics. 
And I also learned a little bit about sticking to your guns. At Keen, when we started out, we really focused on transactions. And in 99, that was really not popular at all. Everybody was giving everything away for free and hoping they'd pay for it with advertising. But we stuck to our guns and ground it out through the dot-com implosion through 9-11, turned the company profitable, and then sold it to AT&T. And I think it's just a great example. As an entrepreneur, don't follow the prevailing winds. You know, know that your true north is a little bit different and stay focused on your core values, which in this case was focused around this idea that, look, if somebody will take their wallet out or their credit card out and pay for the service, that is value versus giving it away for free and hoping that advertising will you know, save the day. And what about cycles? Because, I mean, as you were saying, you were able to survive, you know, there, the dot-com bust. You know, there were so many companies that were folding, you know, at that point. And the fact that not only you were able to survive, but, you know, be able to uh, later on, you know, sell this to AT&T in a transaction that was north of 300 million is pretty impressive. So in terms of insights towards, you know, market cycles and macro environments, what were your takeaways from that experience? I think the biggest takeaway is something I'm seeing right now. Build a profitable company as fast as you can. Runway doesn't really matter unless it's on the way to building a profitable company. And so when you, I heard the other day a company say that they had nine years of runway. I don't even know what that means, right? At the end of the day, the goal is build a profitable company as fast as you can. Uh, Ron Conway would, would uh, reiterate this. He'd say, so you control your own destiny. Steve Jobs did it at Apple. You look at the great companies or, you know, Mark did it at Facebook. Build a profitable company and then you control your own destiny. And you is like the wider corporate you. You're just not controlled by investors or outsiders. You can chart your own course, which oftentimes is really important and counter to people's overall feeling about where the company should go or their instinct. Great example of that with Facebook was staying inside of colleges or, or going outside of colleges and opening it up to the world. That was a hotly contested decision inside of Facebook, which probably would not have been, well, may or may not have been made depending on the investors we would have had. Now, for you, second company, second exit, you know, you were on a roll, um, you know, as, as an, uh, an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So I guess in this case, you know, after this transaction to AT&T, why did you join another company versus, you know, launching another one of your own? Because you joined, you know, the folks at the CloudMark. Right. Well, so I actually... Um, they brought in a quote professional CEO at Keen, so it, it was a little bit of it was a little bit before the AT and T transaction. Um, you know, I was pretty young and pretty green, or as my dad would say, wet behind the ears, and so I was just not. I was not an appropriate CEO for where the company had gotten to, according to the investors. Um, and so I'd been on a board. I, 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 you know, been working with a couple other companies, CloudMark being one of them. And they said, hey, why don't you come be the interim CEO? We need somebody. And so I did. And again, an example of kind of learning a lot and you know, being exposed and, and open to trying new things and joined Vipple and, and Jordan in that project. And in that project, I mean, you guys ended up selling it to Proofpoint. But looking back, I mean, what was the lesson that uh, you had to learn? Because, I mean, obviously, you know, with CloudMark, it didn't take long. I mean, it was like a couple of years, you know, before the transaction happened. So during that time, you know, what was that lesson that you took with you? 
It's interesting. It may look like that. It actually took took quite a while. It was about eight years. Um, And so CloudMark was, yeah, I mean, um, another example, stick to your guns. You know, that company was profitable for probably four years up until the transaction happened. And so it could kind of choose its own destiny and choose its own approach, which became critical because that space, the security space and the enterprise space became quite difficult over time. And so being profitable was really helpful. And in fact, uh, it helped me encourage the company to turn down the first acquisition offer, which was a terrible offer. It was a terrible offer for the investors, terrible offer for the shareholders. And uh, I, I decided that wasn't something I could support, particularly because I had a lot of friends who were still at the company and were people upset, particularly the the current investors. They thought that, hey, this is a great deal. They were going to make some money. Their funds were kind of at the end of their their lifespan. But we we you know I have to say uh, you know, to our credit held our ground and they ended up selling the company for quite a bit more two years later. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by Dot Tech Domains. I mean, I can tell you one thing, and that is that as a founder, you're always thinking about branding. Now, one thing that is very important in that you know is that. You need traction, you need to grow, you need to succeed. And having a name that is recognizable on a really amazing domain is the way to go. So that is why it's very important to establish the online presence with a clear and distinguishable identity. And you can do that with .tech domains. So .tech domains are the go-to namespace to build anything in tech. They have actually helped many brands in the industry to make a name for themselves, just like OneX.Tech with their advanced Androids designed to replicate human movements and behaviors. So really, really, really cool stuff and cutting edge. And again, thousands of companies like this, you know, are also taking advantage of .Tech domains. So uh, also remember that .Tech domains can do the same, you know, for your company. They're also providing a great offer to every single one of you in the DealMakers audience. Is one-year domain for $10 and a five-year domain for $50. So head now to the special URL, which is go.tech slash dealmakers. And that is, again, go.tech forward slash dealmakers. So go get your own domain. So this episode is brought to you by SaneBox. So are you tired of sorting through junk email in your inbox so that you can find the emails that you really need? SaneBox does the sorting for you, setting the average user more than two hours a week on email management. Using its proprietary AI, SaneBox organizes your incoming emails into appropriate folders so that when you open your inbox, you'll only see the most important emails. You don't have to lift a finger, nothing to install either. SaneBox works with any email client. SaneBox saves you tons of time. It also is all about helping you stress less on email and SaneBox works on how you work. Basically, they don't force you on doing changes. They make it easier to focus on the important things. And they also have you as a trial user there for free. You know, and in essence, you know, then you would convert into a paying client. But the beauty here is that you will get a promo code if you were to go to sanebox.com forward slash dealmakers. And that is spelled as S-A-N-E-B-O-X and then dot com. Now, after this, you took some time off. And then one day you receive a phone call from Sean Parker at uh, Facebook. 
Tell us about this. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was uh, multiple phone calls, actually, because I didn't answer the first few. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, he said, hey, you've got to come to San Francisco. I said, well, I'm in Cozumel. I'm kiteboarding and I'm taking time off. I'm not going anywhere. He said, trust me, it'll be worth it. And, uh, you know, Sean had a good instinct for stuff like that. And so uh, in the middle of my kiteboarding trip, I got on a plane, flew to San Francisco, uh, met with Mark at University Cafe. And uh, by the time I got back to Cozumel, I had the agreement for me to be an advisor in my email. And what did you see, you know, in the company and, and also Mark Zuckerberg? Because, I mean, now it's incredible, like what uh, he's built, you know, the legacy and the level of impact no, of Mark Zuckerberg that, that the world knows today. But, but what did you see there that uh, you were like, wow, this is, this is interesting? I think the biggest thing that I saw was Marcus Cognitive Sciences. But that was his background and mine was biomedical engineering. And we, we really saw eye to eye on this idea that if you could build something that would help humans connect, that you would have something special. And so I didn't know what it was going to be. I don't really think Mark did either, to be honest. I think it was evolving at the time. But that was the core of it. It was like just kind of being aligned on where things could be one day and that we could use technology to help people improve their social connections with each other. It turns out it was much, much bigger than we thought. And that's kind of one of the things I think people forget is that every idea starts very, very small, particularly the good ones. And the idea that people knew back then, including Zuck, that Facebook would be something that everyone in the world pretty much would use is just not true. Like no entrepreneur knows in the beginning. They hope, they dream, but the idea that, that they knew that they were going to connect the world, that's just not true. And why no one wanted to give them money at that point? <laughs> that's one of my favorite stories. I, I saw some investors or who could have been investors in Facebook. And they said, everybody has, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty and revisionist history, right? So the funny thing was, well, you know, too bad that didn't work out. I said, well, you guys just turned us down. It's not too bad it didn't work out. You actually just turned us down. Well, yeah, but you guys said you would never go outside of college. And you guys said this, and then there's always an excuse. And I think that, you know, that's kind of the interesting thing. So we would say, hey, this is going to stay in colleges. And Sean was adamant about is adamant that it wouldn't leave colleges. And to a T, that was pretty much the number one reason people turned us down. And we pitched everybody. The idea that Facebook just magically got money is completely ridiculous. We pitched every VC in the Valley and pretty much every VC in the Valley turned us down. Wow. So then what, what do you think you know, needed to happen in order for something there to click and, and to get money? Well, I mean, obviously, Jim Breyer at Excel uh, clicked and, and gave us money, which was interesting because we were one of two consumer plays the fund had at the same time. And Excel was you know, not doing great at the time. You know, they were they were definitely in a, at an interesting inflection point in their fund, which Facebook helped create over time. Um, it just took somebody to believe and Peter Thiel and Jim Breyer, and they believed in I think mostly Mark and the team, right? I mean, I think really at that, that point, that was the bet and that they would figure it out. And uh, I don't think any of them knew what kind of ride they were in for. I certainly didn't. And obviously the rest is history. Now, in your case, you know, you continue your journey of, of building nonstop, you know, of uh, launching <laughs> companies. You know, the, the next one actually was Wallop. And that is a very good example of how 
an economic, you know, uh, a scenario or situation really uh, pushes to do a pivot. And then obviously, you know, like into an acquisition, into a nice outcome. So what happened there with Wallop and, and how did that pivot, you know, come about as well? Yeah, so necessity is the mother of invention, my father used to say. And I think that's very true in that, that case. I remember Wallop was a social network that we built and kind of I'd learned a lot at Facebook and, and they said, hey, we're never going outside of college. I said, well, OK, I'll, I'll go outside of college. And, you know, it's also an example of don't spin out R&D projects out of big companies. That was an R&D project at Microsoft that we spun out, which was a mistake. But we'd learned a lot about people, customization, people's desire to be different. So I'll never forget when the economy hit the skids and I went to the board and I said, hey, this one is going to be tough to make money in this environment, really tough. And I actually offered a couple different uh, options, and I'll, I'll give you two of them. Uh, one of them that's pretty hilarious. So one of them was customized phone covers, which is what we ended up doing, physical, transactional, and all that. The other was an iPhone app, and I'll never forget the response. That thing is just a toy. It'll never be a real phone. Forget about it. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, in that cover, it ended up being great. Would have been fun to build an iPhone app too before anybody else did, but you know, you never know. So then, so then in this in this case, Covero, you guys ended up uh, selling it as well. So I guess saying, uh, what was the lesson for you to 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 take from that experience? Well, that another lesson was really if you build a profitable company or close to profitable company, then you control your own destiny. And so that company could just keep on going on as long as they needed to. I think Paul Graham said it best when he said, your, your goal is to be default alive. And I think that's very true if you've got a real business. If you are just trying to keep something alive for nine years, you're actually a zombie. You're not really alive. You're just, you know, walking through the wastelands uh, somewhat lost. With, with no direction and no ability to get to that profitable company that then allows you to do the things that, you, that you'd really like to do. So s- similar theme, we just stuck to our guns. We, there are a lot, a lot of different things that happened. We, everybody went from Blackberries to iPhones during the tenure of that company. Just stuck to this idea that, hey, people want to express themselves, particularly through their phones. The next company that you did, that was Hang Time. Now, yeah. One thing that was uh, interesting there is that you almost sold it twice and you ended up folding the business. I mean, I'm sure that was painful. Yeah. Super painful. I, I don't I hate losing. <laughs> but what 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 happened? I mean, how come you almost sold it twice, that didn't crystallize, and then all of a sudden you end up, you know, having to turn off the lights? Well, I think that one was interesting because it's a, a good example of a great idea. I mean, being able to show people what is possible to do around them from hundreds of millions of events was a fantastic value proposition for consumers. The problem was super hard to make money there, right? You could try to sell tickets and take a cut of that, but that industry is pretty messed up. Um, You could try to like sell merch, again, issues around that. And so two things happened. One, be careful who you're dependent on because we actually used Facebook as our base for a lot of those events. And they, they basically shut that API off, even to us, which I think was the right decision long term, but definitely hurt our business. So be careful what platform you build on and make sure it's a platform. In, on the deal front, 
We had one that fell through, which I'm actually pretty glad that it fell through. It just, it would not have worked out that company. It didn't go out of business, but dang close. And then the other one, I was really excited about it. I was actually, my bags were packed, going to move to LA, go run products for the company. And I remember getting yet another phone call from the COO at the time saying, hey, we're, we're, we're pretty much there. We need to change one more thing. And that's when my deal instinct just kicked in. I said, nah, th this is not a good environment for us to go into. Thankfully, we didn't take that deal because the stock price plummeted from there, not from there on, but about a couple of years later, and has never recovered. And the company's never recovered. Now, could we have helped? Maybe right? Because I think it would have been an interesting tie-up and we definitely saw the same vision around events. Sometimes in deals, you got to know when to walk away, even though it means you got to turn the lights out and uh, really let it go, which was super hard for me because that, that, that had never really happened to me. And how do you know when it's time to walk away? Well, like my dad said, uh, the light at the end of the tunnel can either be a light or an oncoming train. And that one was an oncoming train. I think part of it is recognizing that at certain times in a business, there's just too many things stacked up against you. And you don't have, quote, real traction. You know, entrepreneurs are a funny group. They're very optimistic and everything looks great. Everything's always great. Well, this, this conversion is getting better. That conversion is getting better. What I think we realized is that we had a great app, a great consumer business or great consumer product that people love and a revenue model that wasn't going to work. And so we had to tie up with somebody else in order to make that work. And that just didn't work, work out for us. So, so I think it's like knowing is it's, it's a gut instinct thing, but it's also a little bit about, you know, how much longer are you willing to, to try that one? We probably should have, you know, stopped earlier. And we, we, in some ways, we lied to ourselves. You know, we just like, oh, just one more feature, just one more thing. And when we finally turned that corner, it was too late, which is really too bad. And then Facebook pulled the plug on the API for us. And <laughs> that, then things went pretty south from there. Now, before we talk about your latest one, you know, which is a rocket ship, you know, during, the, uh, during this course of time, I mean, over 20, 24 years or so, You've also been investing. You've been an angel investor. You've mm -hmm. invested in over 35 companies. What are the three traits that you find on those founders that you're like, I got to invest in, 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 in this individual? Well, that you just said it, the individuals, right? So, so the first thing I've learned is regardless of what you think about the idea, invest in the individuals because they'll figure it out. And that was true at Facebook. That was true at June true at Everlane, over and over again, even true for the ones I missed. I missed Twitter. I could have invested in Odeo and I passed and Odeo turned into Twitter. And uh, I asked the entrepreneur, I said, hey, how come you didn't call me back? I was the one who wrote down my feedback and said I didn't. He's like, have you ever called back an investor who said no to you? <laughs> that, was a, that was a good lesson. So I, I think that's one. I think two is... If you do agree on the idea, then part of it is market size and product. Not so much because you think market size and product for that particular idea are the right ones, but it shows you how the entrepreneurs think. And if it's like, oh, well, the market's $50 trillion and we're going to get 0.01% of it, that is not a market sizing that I believe in. 
Um, if it's like, hey, we're going to start at X and grow it over time. Here's our conversion rates. Here's our monthly active users. Here's our daily active users. Here's our returning users, which is the more important metric. Here's how many people share the product with their friends. That's the kind of stuff that, that, I, that I look for. Nice. Now, let's talk about your latest company. Eh? Obviously, Carl is nonstop, never stopping. So let's talk about LoanSnap. So what do you guys have to do with LoanSnap? And, and why did you think that the problem was meaningful enough for you to take action? Well, it's interesting. I remember the day when I realized that the mortgage industry is $13 trillion industry and it had not been disrupted yet. And thinking if I was an entrepreneur I was giving advice to, I would tell them, go do that right now. And so I had to take my own advice. And so we started uh, you know, kind of, uh, as you pointed out, it's a rocket ship now, but boy, it's not been an easy road. $13 trillion industries that haven't been disrupted haven't been disrupted for a reason. And that's because it's super complicated. There's many people in the ecosystem and you have to solve a lot of problems at the same time. And this is where a lot of my experience in the past has have come together. I've solved the beginning of the problem, the middle of the problem, and the end of the problem, you know, back end piece, the front end piece in my career. I've never done it all at the same time. And that's that's what we're doing here. And until I'd say late last year, we really didn't have it all put together. Now it is. And in an environment where most people are really struggling, particularly in the mortgage space, we're actually doing quite well. So for the people that are listening to get it, what is the business model of LoanSnap? How do you guys make money? Oh, we have to have a business model? Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so it's pretty easy. We make loans. So we're an originator. And then we sell those loans to big financial institutions, governments, banks, and, and funds. And so we take a cut of that transaction. Pretty simple. However, it belies the complexity there because the industry has been around for many, many years and been so massively profitable, no one's had to make it efficient until now because higher interest rates are definitely not great for your regular mortgage company. So not only do we make money that that way, right, but we're also starting to build the infrastructure to be able to make money at the different points in the loan process and even selling the loans and even balance sheeting them meaning holding the loans in some cases. Uh, that's where a whole bunch of the tech stack and there's AI involved. We were doing AI stuff like three or four years ago. Now everybody's finally caught up with us or they haven't caught up, but they've caught up with them on their marketing front, not, not necessarily with the tech front, the blockchain. And there's a lot of interesting things going on there. And so it, it's been interesting to kind of see this ecosystem that's been around for so long, like insurance was before insurance and other companies, so desperately in the need of change, but because they're so profitable on the business models that they have, they haven't needed to change and, until someone forces them to, and that's going to be us. Now, also for this, you have raised some money. I mean, and you've now done it so many times that uh, I'm sure it was not that difficult to raise money, but also you've been on both sides of the table. So I'm sure that you were quite picky with selecting the people that you were going to bring on board as investors. So why did you choose the people that you did on the A round that you did, on the B round that you did? And then also just, just to start off, how much capital have you guys raised to date? Uh, just over $50 million, uh, in capital raised. And you're right. I mean, I've raised 23 rounds of financing. So I, I mean, personally, for my own companies, I don't even know what it is for other companies. And so I think that the goal that we had when we started this company was we knew it was going to be a long-term play. 
we knew that we needed long-term thinking investors. And that's really why we chose True Ventures and Baseline. Just two firms that have just stood the test of time and are focused on long-term benefit and supporting companies that give back. I mean, our company saves our customers $80 million last year. Like we're focused on value to consumers, not necessarily giving them a loan that takes advantage of them. I think that's those times are gone. Well, I'm hoping to put an end to those times in, in the finance industry, particularly in, in mortgage. So we needed investors who were aligned and we would basically test them. Now, are you okay with there not being any kind of outcome for seven years or more? And that's important because it's two years past the life of most funds. And the, when the answer came back, yes, then we knew we'd found the, the right people. Then it turned out that we found more and more of those. So Richard Branson put money in after that, Peter Thompson, uh, who started Thompson Reuters, um, and then a bunch of other like-minded individuals who are more focused on the long-term, who understand that if you're going to disrupt these massive markets that have not been disrupted before, it is not going to happen overnight. So obviously, to these investors, you had to share a compelling future and a vision. So imagine you were to go to sleep tonight, Carl, and you wake up in a world where the vision of LoanSnap is fully realized. What does that world look like? That world looks like a world where we've saved our customers billions of dollars. And instead of having a loan or loans that they hate and they don't understand, they have loans that they love that have helped them achieve success in their lives, however you define it, whether that's starting your own business or sending your kids to college or remodeling your house. Uh, and in your own language, meaning without all the financial jargon thrown at you. So hopefully it's a world where your financial partner is a partner and trying to help you versus working against you and take advantage of you as we've seen in the last, well, 50 years. So obviously here talking about the future, but let's talk about the past now and doing it with a lens of reflection. So let's say I put you into a time machine, Carl, and I bring you back in time. Maybe to that time that you were at Sun Microsystems, you know, wondering like what you would do of your own. And let's say, you know, you had the opportunity of sitting down that younger Carl and giving that younger Carl one piece of advice before launching a company. But would that be and why, given what you know now? I think the advice would be don't stop. You know, I think the thing that is hard at that point is going for it and doing it and not stopping and giving it giving it your all. Um, I remember when I left Apple, Steve gave me a really good piece of advice, and I'll just kind of like compress it for this. It's definitely not one of the Steve quotes you see attributed to him. He said, you know what? You're only young enough and dumb enough and poor enough once in your life to really go for it. He said, so go for it. And I did. I left. And, you know, that was kind of the, the thing I held with me in starting my own company. It was like, hey, I mean, I, I didn't have a mortgage. He asked me that. I, I didn't have car payments or kids or a family or anything like that. And so that was a, that was a big opportunity to, to be able to try something totally crazy that my mom cried over, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and have it turn out. And that's a very rare time in your life when that's, that's possible. 
Wow, Carl, very profound. Now, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Well, I'm at Carl at Twitter, which gives you some idea of how long ago I started playing around with, with Twitter, <laughs> uh, or Carl Jacob at Gmail, K-A-R-L-J-A-C-O-B at gmail.com. Amazing. Well, hey, Carl, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great to be on the show. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.